0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Can you hear? My name is Bob Hillman. I'm a trustee of the Pratt Library. And on behalf of the entire Pratt family, welcome. It's good to have you here. Um, I always uh, get a chuckle when I'm in this room. My second daughter was married here at the Pratt, and we took the wedding pictures in this room. And now we have an album full of pictures with... Poe looking over our shoulder, <laughs> not the cheeriest looking guy you would want in wedding pictures. Anyway, you, um, you could not ask for a um, better traveling companion than Don Miller. Sandy and I um, met Don and his wife Rose on a trip we took with the World War II Museum to um, Normandy this June. Don was one of the historian lecturers Not only does he know everything about World War II, and a few other subjects also, as you'll learn tonight, um, but he and his wife are wonderful companions for cocktails and dinner. More importantly for you, Don is a brilliant teacher, historian, and author. He is the McCracken Professor of History at Lafayette College, not far from here. By the way, he has a PhD from the University of Maryland. And he's an author of seven books. He's written extensively about World War II and his book about the 8th Air Force, Masters of the Air, is thought of as a um, one of the most widely acclaimed books about the European conflict. Currently, Don's working on a HBO special with Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg, 10-part special um, based on Masters of the Air and uh, as he calls it, Band of Brothers in the Sky. Um, I've asked him to say a couple of words about that, and I think he'll probably do that before we get into the question and answer period. Um, Don's um, previously collaborated with Hanks and Spielberg on on the um, HBO series The Pacific, which some of you might have seen. But his work is not confined to World War II, Um, Among his other historical works are an award-winning book about Chicago called City of the Century, a history of coal mining in Pennsylvania, and a biography of Lewis Mumford. So you see, he really does know a lot about everything. Um, His latest book, Supreme City, celebrates New York City during the Jazz Age and its influence on modern America. A very favorable review a few weeks ago in the New York Times called it a work of an enthusiast enthusiast, and said, Miller's enthusiasm is catching. I'm sure you will also catch Don Miller's enthusiasm. It's my great pleasure to introduce Donald L. Miller.
1: Well, It's great to be here. And I want to thank Judy Cooper uh for um, setting up the arrangements and making me feel at home and Bob and Sandy for um welcoming to the library and having a wonderful, you know, being wonderful hosts to us. Um they were as he said, you know, we were okay travel companions, they were spectacular travel companions. And I learned that, you know, um Bob plans all the trips and uh Sandy, the, the real travel expert, uh, just in, kind of enjoys them, right? <laughs> this is a great room. Um, I spoke at the um, Central Library of the uh, New York Public Library, and they have nothing like this room. I mean, this, this is really, really special. It's haunting. Well, um, this is City of the Century. It's my 10th book, and... Um, Hopefully not the last. <laughs> and um, it's a—it's not the book I set out to write. I, quite a number of years ago, when I launched into this project, I had intended to um, take on more—not uh, to be hokey, but you know, to take a bigger bite of the apple. And um, I was gonna—I was gonna do um, all of New York, all five boroughs. And in this book, I, you know, I don't do that. And I was going to do New York from the end of World War I right through to the beginning of World War II, the interwar years, a subject I've been teaching for for many years. But when I got into this story, as usual, you know, a book kind of, Barbara Tuckman's right, a book kind of comes up and grabs you and and tells you, you know, what's to be written. And I came across this story within a story, and that's the story of the rise of Midtown Manhattan, the area straight across the island from 42nd Street up to Central Park. And... uh, Actually, unbeknownst to me, and that made it exciting because it was new, um, this area was a, a relative backwater in 1919. There wasn't a single skyscraper north of 42nd Street in 1919. By 1929, there's this sudden and spectacular eruption of construction in Midtown, and they have as many skyscrapers in Midtown as they have in the Wall Street District. In 1927 alone, they built 30 skyscrapers over 40 stories high in New York City. It was a massive construction site. And along with this tremendous building boom, probably the big, biggest building boom in a short period of time in the history of cities, that's saying a lot. Um, during this building boom, the building boom itself sparks a cultural boom. Uh, the movement of major American communications industries and entertain, entertainment industries into Midtown. Publishing, um, network radio, the beginnings of television was invented in New York City in these years. Um, it seemed the, the garment industry moved into Midtown. Uh, the theater district moved into Midtown from from you know, down below 42nd Street. So there's this tremendous gravitational movement. And I was amazed that it occurred in such a, a concentrated period of time. And I do focus on one year in the book, and that year is, uh, is 1927. And uh, this is um, Lower Manhattan, and um, we all know it at Battery Park and whatnot. And for 300 years, Lower Manhattan dominated New York. It was New York, really. And then all of a sudden, by 1927, there's this spectacular eruption of construction and culture in Midtown. And it was symbolized for me by the construction of this building, which still stands on 45th Street and 5th Avenue, the Fred French building, uh, built by uh, the real estate pioneer Fred French. It's a magnificent Art Deco building, but uh, more news than that at 11. Uh, this is 1927, the year, of course, that Lindbergh made its famous solo flight, from an airfield just out on Long Island to Paris and then returned to Washington and then New York where he was greeted by 4 million people and, um, in, in June of 1927. And, uh, of course, this is the the 21 Club, and, uh, which was founded in about the same time. And I do a little history of the 21 Club in the book along with a lot of the speakeasies that I deal with. And so in that year, 1927, uh... Fitzgerald caught it. He caught the tempo of it. He wrote this. He said, The tempo of the city changed sharply. The parties were bigger, the buildings were higher, the morals were looser, and the liquor was cheaper. The Jazz Age now raced along under its own power, served by great filling stations full of money. Would have loved to have written that. (laughs) Um, So New York, then, is in the vanguard of um, social, engineering, architectural, and technological transformations that are changing not only New York but are radiating out to the whole country. And that's what I do and try to do in the book, show that we become recognizable as Americans in this book. Whenever I teach the 20s in, in, you know, in, in the classroom, the students always say, now we can recognize these people. They're, they're a lot like us. And they are quintessentially modern people. And... Um, you also have the emergence in, this, in these years of, of, of mass spectator sports. So it's a center of just about everything. Uh, Duke Ellington, the great jazz man, said that New York was, he, did, he called it that, the capital of everything. He said no, nothing happens anywhere in the country unless somebody in New York presses a button. And, and that kind of sums up what, it, what we try to do in this. And there's the area, the very concentrated area I try to, uh, I try to, I try to deal with. But it's not a book about bricks and mortar. It's, it's about the people behind the bricks and mortar. The buildings are interesting to me, and I often think of them as autobiographical, and I'll get into that in a second. But this is about blazingly ambitious people, strivers, who came to New York from out of New York. My book is filled with characters. There's about 33 to 34 major characters. I even have a cast of characters at the front of the book, like you'd read in a playbill, for example. And um, most of them are from west of the Hudson and east of the Danube and they're, they're outsiders, and these people are the ones who changed New York. And as usual, you know, you, you do a lot of dumb things when you write a book, and I'm writing along here, and I thought to myself one day, well, oh my God, this is, what, this is exactly what happened in Chicago. And uh, I had written a book about Chicago before this. It was almost a companion piece to this I did 19th century Chicago. Jane Addams, John Dewey, Clarence Darrow, you know, Daniel Burnham, you know, Lewis Sullivan, the great architect, they all were outsiders. And these are the kind of people that that change cities. Years ago, I began a book on Florence in the 15th century, and I thought of a novel, and I thought of the same thing. Um, Hopefully, before they throw the last, you know, bit of gravel on my grave, I'll finish that book. But I read, uh, in the middle of the book, I I picked up uh, and reread E.B. White's thin little classic called Here is New York. And I used it for the epigraph for the book because it caught the gist of exactly what I was trying to do. And um, White writes this. He said, it's the person who was born elsewhere and came to New York in quest of something that accounts for New York's high-strung disposition, its poetical deportment, its dedication to the arts, and its incomparable achievements. And another inspiration for me was the great Frenchman Alexis de Tocqueville. Uh, who said that every American is eaten with a longing to rise. Outsiders will come in the city. Um, like Enoch Pratt, came to New York with $150, all right, became an iron magnet, steamships, railroads, and a philanthropist who founded this library in eighteen eighty two. Same type of person. Same type of person. So my characters come into the city to try to plant their flag. And they refashion the city's commerce, and they refashion its culture. And the city, in turn, like a Hegelian dialectic, it in turn changes them. And uh, here's a number of them just at the beginning of here. David Sarnoff, he came from a Belarusian village that was so backward it was medieval. The first time he saw anything that wasn't moved by a horse was the day he left the village and saw a train for the first time at age 12. And uh, he came to New York and, um, with, his, with his mother as a child, and uh, got a job as a telegraph operator, and ten years later was head of RCA. Uh, six years after that, he's one of the richest men in the world, and uh, sensational rise. This on the right is Tex Rickard, a saloon keeper from the uh, you know Canadian Klondike in gold country. Ran the biggest saloon up there. He's a he's a con man, and that's his uh, meal ticket, Jack Dempsey. Okay, and Rickard bought Madison Square Garden and turned it into the greatest sports arena. In the history of the country and these two guys together along with Babe Ruth and some of his agents created mass spectator sports there was no such thing before where athletes had agents athletes were covered year-round not just during the sporting you know during the sporting year whether it be football baseball boxing whatever and they're sensationally interesting people there's a Bambino you know Another hard hitter, if you will, like uh, like Dempsey, and he changed box he changed uh, baseball just as much as Dempsey changed boxing. It was all about the knockout in boxing with dempsey, and it 's all about the home run with Babe Ruth, as opposed to the old John McGraw you know hit and run, bunt, you know squeeze, and things like that, two to one ball games you know lasting hours and hours and uh, so the babe 's a character in the book, and this is Joseph Patterson, who comes into Chicago, part of the famous Patterson. Joseph Medill Patterson, his great grandfather was a friend of Lincoln and founded the Chicago Tribune. And this is a gigantic Chicago newspaper family. He split with them. He was a socialist for a time. Later, he was a hard, died in a wool capitalist. But he founded the New York Daily News, the first American tabloid. And of course, what was the news all about? It was about crime. It was about sports. It was about mass entertainment. It was about the movies. And a lot of my book is about that. It, It was started in 1919. On a shoestring and um, his mother wouldn't release the family fortune to allow him to get into what she called gutter journalism and um, by 1926 it's the most read newspaper in the world not just in New York City okay far out distancing the New York Times so these are the kinds of characters and then finally Jimmy Walker the the, the savvy classy mayor of New York who was brought down by uh, by corruption in 1932 Uh, They investigated him from from his nose to his toes, but they were never able to nail him on anything. So he got away scot-free, but he was forced out by Franklin Roosevelt, who was running for president in 1932 and didn't want a scandal uh, coming out of New York, you know, uh, jeopardizing his chances for the nomination in 1932. Walker's fantastic, really bright guy, and I think most of the biographies on Walker substitute anecdote for analysis, and he's a serious guy who did a lot of good for New York. Um, he He just wasn't up to the job. He didn't have the moral courage to stand up to Tammany Hall, and he didn't have the perseverance to really push through big projects and stay with him, so he didn't have sustainability but he's a colorful, glittering, 20s type of character, bouncing from party to party, from engagement to engagement, from gala to gala. One night he was at a Polish fest, and then he went to an Italian fest, and then he showed up at a Jewish fest. And just before he walked in the room, he put on a yarmulke, and he went dancing into the room in his stylish outfit there with his toothpick shoes, you know, those pointed shoes. And he had the yarmulke on, and some woman yelled from the audience, circumcision next, Jimmy. Jimmy. And he said, no, madam, I prefer to wear it off. <laughs> yeah, and what I try to do in the book, just a just one word about methodology is, and what I try to do in all my books is I try to tell the story as it's lived by the characters at the time, with no knowledge, the characters having no knowledge of the future. I call this, a lot of his his histories that written in a different way, I call it the, the, the fallacy of hindsight. Hindsight's supposed to give you perspective, but if you know the Great Depression's coming and you, you kinda, and the, and cast the whole story as the build-up to the Depression, it's a false story because nobody foresaw the Depression. The day before the stock market crash, nobody foresaw the crash. As my friend David McCullough said, the worst phrase in the English language is the foreseeable future. Um, the future can never be seen. It can never be seen. So I try to get behind the eyes of these characters and see, see life as they did. Okay. And um, I begin the book, actually just before the 20s, with the building of the new uh, Grand Central Terminal on 42nd Street. And um, this is one of the second greatest pu- uh, public projects uh, next to the Panama Canal at its time. And it extends from 42nd Street all the way up to 56th Street. And it's, it's brought into being um, by you know um, a railroad accident. And uh, what happened was, and I'll stay on this for a little bit, what happened was there were tunnels that led into this rail yard. And you have to envision this. Where Grand Central Station is today... If you, There was a giant railroad yard that fanned out like a big V all the way to the river, to the East River in one stride, and all the way to, to um, Lexington Avenue on the other side, and all the way up beyond 56th Street. That's all rail yard. There's no grid there. There's no cross streets. You had a cross on iron you know, uh, gates. Uh, remember that Terry in Reading, Pennsylvania, those, those iron gates used to walk across on the rail yards? Yeah, exactly. That's Reading's my hometown, a real railroad town. It's on a monopoly board, okay, and um, take a ride on the reading, right? And um, this is a train was barreling through one of these tunnels that led into the rail yard. It, the tunnel was filled with smoke. Um, the trains weren't electrified. And uh, the engineer didn't see a couple of warning lights, and he slammed into another train that was waiting to get into the yard. And both of them were commuter trains packed with people, and it was, a, it was a catastrophe. The carnage was terrible. And the New York Central was forced by the state legislature to electrify its trains. Now, that leads to this. a guy Again, throughout this book, I'm finding characters that I never knew about before. I never heard of this guy, William Wilgus. Uh, I never heard of half the characters when I started the book. And Wilgus, I see as not just a great engineer, but the founder of modern midtown Manhattan. Wilgus was the railroads, the New York Central Railroads chief engineer. And um, he was given the job of electrifying the trains, but he went further than that. Um, He convinced his superiors, people like J.P. Morgan, who had a home near there and didn't like all the smoke and things like that. And uh, he convinced them to build this, this new terminal, which is a tremendous people moving machine that really the trains move, yes, but when you're in the station, there's no stairs in the station, not at all. And, uh, and then down you take this down to the subway tracks there, you could get subways all over New York City, and then they connect in turn through um, underground passageways lined with beautiful shops at the time to buildings nearby. Uh, business buildings, the Yale Club, you know, et cetera, all in Midtown, and it was a tremendous, tremendous achievement. And this is what it looked like when it was done. And as you can see here, the, um, they built a viaduct over 42nd Street, so traffic could go below here. Then they built a collar road around the station, so you came in a car just like you do today. And this is the New York Central Railroad's headquarters. And as you know, it has two portals, and you drive through those portals. It's the first drive-through building. In the, uh, in the history of the world. And this is what the rail yard, by the way, looked like before. And when it was done, but that's what it looked like there too. When it was done, that's what it looked like. That's Park Avenue. <laughs> Modern Park Avenue was built entirely in the 1920s. It was built in seven years. And right on that rail yard. The New York Central buried the tracks and on the roof of the tracks, they sold the plots to real estate people. And they sold the air rights, a new thing at the time, to developers. The developers are keen to get big tracts of land, which are hard to assemble in a big city. Because once you start buying them, they get more, the later ones get more expensive. So on these tracts, he induces people to build these beautiful skyscrapers here, many of them hotels and apartment hotels with common corridor lines, And the New York Central could control the architecture as well. This central thing here, straight Avenue. Um, Zelda Fitzgerald wrote a great story on. She said it was straight as a sunbeam. Uh, that's Scott Fitzgerald took credit for the story, but it was really Zelda's story. And we're in the Great Gatsby. Gatsby comes in over the Queensborough Bridge and drives down through here to meet Meyer Wolfsheim and bootlegger. Um, in Zelda's story, she comes out through the portals and up Park Avenue. It's a terrific story. Um, and um, the. Further up the avenue, they're building tall buildings, the Ritz Tower and things like this. And these apartment buildings, by the way, are the, first, are the tallest buildings built for human habitation in the history of the world. Nobody had ever lived that high. They were cliff dwellers. And while this is happening, there's a migration from Fifth Avenue over to Park Avenue. Now, this is Fifth Avenue looking south to north toward Central Park, Easter Sunday, 1914. There's some primitive cars and things like that. And everywhere on this avenue, from 42nd Street up, was a mansion that commanded an entire block. And all of them, except the Huntington Mansion, belonged to the Vanderbilt's. It used to be called Vanderbilt Alley. Uh, Anderson Cooper did a special on this on his own background the other night on CNN. He's, uh, he, he is you know, from the Vanderbilt family. He talked a little bit about this sort of thing. But this is where they lived. Now, by the early 20s, by the mid-20s, Most of the titans of capitalism that built these homes are dead. Their wives are still alive. The Places are expensive and drafty and hard to keep up and it's hard to get get maid service. So they're anxious to sell. Young Jewish real estate agents crawling out of the ghetto through the garbage industry come in here and buy the street, basically. The minute they bought every mansion, any one of these mansions, the next week it was torn down. And the whole street was, was changed from residential to commercial. The last home to go. Was this home right here, the Cornelius Vanderbilt's second home? That's the largest urban residence in the world. Uh, that's right where the Plaza Hotel is in New York City. And uh, what happens, see, in this this is Saks Fifth Avenue moves up from Herald Square, and uh, the gimbals actually run Saks. That's a long story, but Saks dominates the street. Um, and that's what, that's what that street I just showed you in 1914 looked like 10 years later. It was almost completely commercialized in, in, in this fashion. And there it is again, with some of the early trolley lines and, and cars and things like that. And it's the most expensive retail street in, in, in the world. Final shot, of, you get a sense of the perspective of that. Cornelius Vanderbilt's second mansion. Now, he sold that out um, to a guy named Goodman, who was a, started out as a, um, a garment maker from Rochester, New York, came to New York with $15 in his pocket. And uh, he bought the building and raised it to the ground, and he built for and, um, Goodman. And he, he, Goodman was uh, an Alsatian. He drank too much. He worked in the morning and went to a wine bar, and that was the end of the day for him. And uh, Goodman was a hustler. And uh, eventually, Goodman, after he constructs it, he lives in the tower. It's not exactly a tower, but it's an upper story here, and they had a penthouse here. He'd work in the morning, and every afternoon he'd go up and listen to the Yankees on the radio. He loved Bay Roots. And now he wasn't allowed by law to live in that building. Because under New York City code, only custodians can live in industrial buildings. Now you say that's not an industrial building, but it is. Because on this floor, women made dresses looking out over Central Park. They made the dresses that were sold in the store, custom dresses, so it wasn't industrial ability. So Goodman, a good Democrat, went to see Jimmy Walker, and Jimmy Walker changed the city code. And, but actually, he didn't have to change the city code. He simply designated Goodman and his wife as custodians. And, and so surely they were the richest janitors in the history of the world. Uh, and, uh, and right across, right down the street, on the other side of the street, these two women moved in uh, and created the modern beauty business. That's Elizabeth Arden, okay, a Canadian farm girl, um, came to New York with nothing, with a loan from her uncle, and uh, helped to build with Helena Rubinstein from Krakow, the daughter of a kerosene dealer, escaped to Australia, escaped a, a, an arranged marriage that her parents had set up, and arrived in New York City, and they transformed women's culture. Um, Powder and paint were considered sinful things in 1920, 21. Only actresses and and fast-living, working-class girls wore makeup. And they transformed that. They said, every woman has a right to be beautiful. They played on that theme of every woman has a right to vote. And they built that into a business. And they sold cosmetics and creams and and entire uh, garages for the repair of women's faces. (laughs) And... um, you could get anything in there, you know, massage, exercise. You could learn fencing and things like that. And by 1927, they are the two richest independent women in the world. Okay? And they control empires with offices and, and salons in Vienna and Paris and London and you name it. And they, they control their world. And you say, the beauty business? My, my, my nephew made fun of that. He said, oh, you're, you're writing about hairdressers. I said, well, not exactly. Because in 1927, women spent more money on cosmetics than the American people, the entire population of the country, spent on electric power. It's the eighth largest industry in the country. Okay, And, uh, and, they, and they built it. Now, while this is going on, well, Fifth Avenue is being transformed, so you got Fifth, Park, they're completely different. And now you go down toward the river, and Fred French comes into the scene again, the guy who built that skyscraper on, uh, on Fifth Avenue that we looked at, and he builds a place called Tudor City. It's still there in New York City. It's a garden community right in the middle of New York City at the end of 42nd Street. And uh, it's a five minute walk from Central Park, and it's still affordable. Originally, it had a golf course, a miniature golf course, you know, beautifully decorated and things like that, t- in the Tudor style and things like that. And I still think it's a model not only for gentrification, but for um, livable places in the heart of cities that, that, that don't bust your pocketbook. And um, uh, French was another one of these characters that just absolutely came out of nowhere, like Walter Chrysler. Walter Chrysler is from the Texas Plains. I mean, his parents went out there and were were fighting, you know, Indian Americans on on the Plains. He becomes a railroad mechanic, tours the country, gets interested in cars. Five years later, he's head of Buick. Seven years later, he forms his own car company, and that's his first car, the Chrysler 6. It was fast. It was light. For the time, it was sporty. And then he said, I want to make my headquarters not in Detroit, but in the capital of the world, New York. We're going to make it the capital of the world, and I'm going to build the Chrysler building, and that's it. Um, And Chrysler bought out um, a a developer that had intended to build a tall building. He bought the architect as well. And um, he announced that he was going to build the tallest edifice in the world. I say edifice, not just building, because it was going to be taller than the Eiffel Tower. So um, this is 1928. 1928. And when he announces it, all the papers, of course, write it up, and the tabloids are all over it, especially the daily news. But his announcement sets off a, what's called a sky race because some developers down on Wall Street at Forty Wall, that's a building that uh, Trump controls now, and uh, they said, we're going to best him. We're going we're to go higher than Chrysler. So there's this sky race that's going on in the newspaper for nine months. And in October 1929, the papers, all the New York papers, declared Forty Wall the winner. And Chrysler was angry. And he wasn't going to accept defeat. So what he does is, inside the building, the tower, while it's being constructed, he orders the construction in secret of this thing here called the Vertex. It's just a steel tower. It's 180 feet high, a needle. It's still, of course, on the Chrysler building. And he built it inside here. And then on one October day, the day before the stock market crash, up it went. Not a single person in New York noticed it. They thought it was a crane up there. And a couple of days later, Chrysler announced, it. gotcha. <laughs> and uh, when, they, when they put it up, Chrysler, the architect, and one of the developers stood seven blocks away. They thought that they thought the whole thing was going to topple over. Yeah. Uh, it, it stood. And for a time at 10,046 feet, uh, feet, it was the tallest building in the world, but only for 11 months. And that's when the Empire State Building went up. Okay, Le Corbusier, the architecture critic, called it hot jazz in stone and steel. And uh, I think it's a near-perfect representation of Midtown's style, its speed, and its romantic excess. And uh, William Van Allen's the architect. Not a lot of people know him. Not a lot of people know any New York architects, actually, unlike Chicago. And he built it with this... this, this the reason it's so gleaming today, it doesn't have to be cleaned. It's built with this thing, but... It's it's a a German steel called Narasta steel, made by the Krupp works in Germany, and um, it has Narasta steel. All the trim in the building is Narasta steel. But one of the nice things about the building is it's very accommodating inside. You walk in, and of course, maybe you've visited next door to it, Grand Central Station. So you're right across the way in Grand Central with its magnificent, you know, dome and uh, its ceiling. And the Chrysler Building has an equally magnificent ceiling built by a guy named Edward Trumbull. But this one's dedicated to workers, the physical workers, the laborers who put up the, the skyscraper. And I think it's New York's commanding artistic testimony to the workers who built its Art Deco skyscraper. And it's been cleaned and looks really good. It's a great trip uh, into, the, uh, into the lobbies of these buildings around there. And then diagonally across the street, and that's what the whole area starts to look like by 1929 in Midtown. Um, diagonally across from the Chrysler Building and directly across from Grand Central uh, is the Irwin- Irwin-Channon Building. That's still up today, 56 stories high. It's the fourth largest building in New York. Uh, Channon's another one of these guys who had a rocket-like advance. And um, in 1919, uh, he's, a, he's a veteran of World War I. He's jobless. He's broke. He's living with his parents, who are immigrants from Ukraine, Jewish immigrants from Ukraine. They tried to go back to the home country to regroup their, 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 their earnings and couldn't and came back here. They're, they bottomed out, and, and, and he, he was with them. Uh, he bought two houses on spec, two lots, lots on spec, threw up a couple of houses, cheap houses in Bensonhurst for returning veterans. Six years later, he's the biggest real estate king in New York. Um, t- two years after that, he's a multimillionaire, and he's being hailed with French as one of the I quote hundred wonder men of New York City. And what's great about this lobby is you walk in it, and this is again architecture's autobiography. The theme of the lobby—it's right on the lobby as you enter it, is city of opportunity. It's a celebration of the city that helped him rise from nothing. And but he doesn't just put it on the city. He said you got to have certain attributes to make it in the city, and he lays them out. You know, luck drive, you know, ambition, all those sorts of things. And every little piece of Art Deco uh, decoration in that lobby is a celebration of that idea of the, uh, of the city. He also thought of the city as theater. He built six theaters in New York, legitimate theaters. Two of them are still standing. And he wanted his building to look like theater. So he put floodlights, 600 floodlights, all around the building. And he lit up the tower at night. And if you were over in Weehawken, it looked like kind of a, an island floating in the sky. That little top piece there, like that. Uh, these guys are these guys are terrific. I mean, they really are. And so, Forty Second Street, and there he is, Irwin Channon. Um, I was given a lecture at the uh, New York Historical Society, and I, I met his uh, for the first time. I met his granddaughter, and um, met a lot of a lot of people like that on that trip. Now, here's what here's what Forty Second Street looked like uh, in um, 1931. There's the Daily News Building, which is built by Raven Hood, we'll come back to him. Joseph Patterson, of course, builds that his tabloid newspaper. There's the Chrysler Tower, there's the Channing Building, there's the Lincoln Building. And notice the reason they're calling it the Valley of Giants. They always refer to the skyscrapers in Lower Manhattan as the mountains of Manhattan because they're so close together, they, they form like a mountain chain and they're squeezed together. These are real towers, and, and they symbolize aspiration. In a, in a beautiful kind of way. And uh, uh, this is the result of that 30-year p- burst I, 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 talked about, I talked about before. And this is Raymond Hood, the builder of the Daily News building. He's from, he's from Connecticut. And um, he's, he also built a, a, an interesting place called Rockefeller Center, along with a bunch of other architects. And he's a real style setter. I think New York creates, you know, everybody talks about the Chicago style of architecture, and it's real, and and, and the consummate architect of the Chicago style is Frank Lloyd Wright. But the um, New York, we never have a thing called a New York style, but I think there is a distinctly New York style, and I think his buildings and Fred French's buildings call it up. And it's characterized by those setbacks that we talked about. Um, Notice how the building, you know, is a slab, to fit a tight space. And then you set the building back like this. Back. Heavy base. Back, back, back. And the architects didn't want to do that. Um, because why would they? They want to build a block and rent out more space. And so it's going to be easier to sell. Okay? The developers who hired the architects. They're interested in that kind of thing. But they couldn't. New York zoning laws called for these setbacks. So legislation, not just the free market, determines how these skyscrapers look. And the purpose of the setback is to bring sunlight and air down into the streets of New York City (coughs) as best it can. And so that's why those buildings in New York, uh, the Art Deco buildings, have those setbacks. And, of course, the best example of them is Rockefeller Center. We'll around and and see those setbacks there. Um, Eli Jacques Kahn, one of the great architects in New York, said, it was a style born of necessity. It's a good idea. Necessity. We had to do it, but we made the best of it. And um, this is Fred French, the originator of the French building. And um, that 38-story skyscraper I talked about before, I found about Fred French. I was reading a Don DeLillo novel, The Underworld. And in The, in the Underworld, these two women, a, a mother and a daughter, walk into the lobby of this building. It's a Fred French building. And one woman says, who the hell was Fred French. And uh, her daughter says, "Well, I don't know." And uh, I wish I, 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 I actually wrote to DeLillo, and I told him, "You know what? These two women in your story actually lived in the same neighborhood in your novel that Fred French lived in real life." And he went, "Oh my God, <laughs> didn't, didn't know, didn't know that." And. Uh, Fred French started the same way. He's selling real estate out of a coal cellar in 1917 in the Bronx. He's living with his mother and 10 years later he's worth $10 million. And uh, his architecture is architecture is autobiography too, I think in a lot of ways. But having seen all these towers, the the building in New York I like the best is this one. Um, And this is a hotel now. And it's a Raymond Hood building called the Radiator Building. And it's it's right across Bryant Park, right across the public library on 40th Street in New York City. And the reason I like it is it's not commandingly tall. It's, um, it, it, it's only 21 stories high. It's, it's hardly a skyscraper. It's all black brick. It's beautifully beautiful lit up at night. Maybe you saw the, um, a famous painting of this building at night. Anybody know it? George O'Keefe. Yeah. I did a beautiful building in there, from her hotel, the Shelton, which was right down the street, where she lived with the photographer, Stiglitz. Uh, this is his first skyscraper in New York. He had built the Tribune Tower in New York City in, in Chicago. That was his first big commission. He didn't expect to get the commission. The day he got it, he said he stayed drunk for 26 hours. And, uh, and then he went out, had his wife went out in a taxi and paid off all their bills. They were living in Penuri with one child, you know, and, uh, and just struggling along. And now he's a world-commanding architecture. But it's built across from a beautiful small park, a neoclassical library. It, does, it has a great sense of the street and everything else. And is isn't like those overwhelming towers. There it is at night. I don't have the permission to use the O'Keeffe painting, but there it is, uh, the building lit up at night. And point I want to make, and then we'll go on to commerce for a little bit, and then we'll go to questions. But this is... Manhattan in the 20s is a gigantic construction site, as I've said. And it's like, it reminded me, I love cathedral building. I love to visit cathedrals and walk around them and study how they were built. And the skyscrapers are built like cathedrals. They're built with steel frames, they're, and the walls are hung from them. Uh, they're not load-bearing. These are Gothic you know, cathedrals. They're not load-bearing walls. The walls are, you know, are, are, are hung with glass and because they're not necessary. The inner buttress... The buttresses and the inner construction holds it up and so it is with a steel frame where you just hang the the walls from the steel frame. But people love to come and see this um, as street theater. And it really was street theater. High steel construction. These boys were they made movies about them. They wrote them up in colliers and other popular magazines. These are the sky boys. And notice no safety harnesses. Okay? And uh no construction hats, nothing, yeah, and up where the birds don't fly, and um, probably the biggest show in town, up high, was uh, the rivet gangs, and the whole town was bang, 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 bang those rivets going like this, This before welding, and uh, there were all kinds of efforts to to create anti-noise legislation in New York, it's too noisy because of the rivet guns, imagine this gigantic construction, they're also building the 6th Avenue subway at the time, so, This is a rivet gang. It's made up of a guy called a heater, a catcher, a bucker-up, and a gunman. Now, what does all that mean? Well, this guy, a guy went up there, maybe on the 67th floor, laid a board down between two steel beams made from Bethlehem steel or ice to work, and he would then have a charcoal furnace. Just like the charcoal furnace, you have a charcoal stove like you have out in your backyard to make your hamburgers. And he would put rivets in there. okay, And when they were red-hot, He'd pull them out with tongs, and he'd whip them up 76, 80 feet to two, three stories up, and this guy would catch them with his glove. That, that is his bucket. okay? And, uh, and then what would happen is this guy, these guys would then um, put, it, put it in here like this. This guy would hold the other end of it here. He's the buffer up, and this guy's the gunman. And he would just hold that pneumatic drill until that rivet, which is like this, is smashed like this, and it has a mushroom cap. See the mushroom cap thing? Mm-hmm. That's a finished rivet. And they could do that in about fifty seconds per <laughs> rivet. But it's pretty dangerous work, and, uh, um, and, and 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 there's no, you know, there's no safety nets either. Not just for the men, but for the rivets. So a lot of these rivets would fall to the streets below. And you can imagine a rivet falling from 67 stories, red hot. And, uh, you know, it's like a, a malevolent missile. It could go right through somebody's head. And, um, but that's the way they worked. And, uh, and these guys lived in Gowanus, and most of them that built this building, the Channon Building, were Mohawk Indians. They came from a reservation on the St. Lawrence River, They commuted down here, stayed six and seven months during the construction season, and returned to their reservations. Um, And the Mohawks take great pride in this. I've been in a Mohawk home. Uh, The women cannot touch the tools and the belts that the tools are on that the men, their sons, and their husbands have because this is a way for the men to establish their self-esteem in an Indian community where the women control everything. They are the government, and they make all the major decisions and always have in Mohawk culture. So um, the women are not allowed to touch the belt. They're not allowed to touch this bolt that goes right in the belt, right across the crotch, especially. And um, they, um, they lived high, and they died at, you know, great rates. Um, one death for every 37 hours on the job. And it's... it's um, one Mohawk Indian told me, he said, we don't die, we are killed. And um, so... Uh, by the way there 's a legend about these guys that they went to heights like this because it was kind of inbred in them. It was, they were genetically coded to do them and that 's crap. Um, the, um, they learned this they learned this sort of thing you know there 's no such thing as an inborn trait for this, and they felt a sense of ownership. They had a great muse- exhibit on the Mohawk Indians at the Museum of the American Indian down in washington d c and I took one quote off the wall. One of the guys says, we're part of this town of man-made mountains New York. He said, we're mountain builders, and, uh, and, and so they are. Now, a lot of them lived, uh, settled, not just in Gowanus, but over in Hell's Kitchen. Now, I'm not going to go into this in any depth, but I do a lot in the book, that I'm not doing here, but a lot of the book is about crime. And one of the gangs in New York that I had never heard about it was always the Mafia, the Mafia, the Mafia, it was a gang controlled by this guy here, Big Bill Dwyer. He was kind of a Gatsby-like figure in the sense that he's you owns know, a big tavern in downtown, he's a mansion up on Long, out on Long Island, and everybody thinks he's just a successful tavern keeper whose clientele includes Babe Ruth and May West and you know, all the big, you know, Bing Crosby and all the big, drinking entertainers in the city. But turns out he's the biggest bootlegger in New York and maybe in the country. Bill Dwyer started out as a longshoreman. And he hooked up with this guy, Frank Costello, uh, so-called prime minister of the underworld and one of the founders of the mafia. That's one of the reasons the cops never found out about these guys. They thought an Italian and an Irishman cooperating? Never. And uh, the third guy in here was also an Irishman, although he was brought up in in the Midlands, the Dickensian Midlands of England, Oney Madden and... Ed Sullivan, the reporter, said, you know, and later television hosts said to know Oney Madden was, like, to know the mayor of New York. He ran the Big Stem, which is what they called Broadway. And these three guys controlled the bootlegging business in Midtown Manhattan out of Hell's Kitchen. This is Oni's Brewery. It was a block-long, fortress-like brewery down on 26th Street in Hell's Kitchen. Riding right out in the open, windows open. You could smell the, you know, the beer you know, in and the, and the grain and the hops out through the windows. But if the cops try to raid it, Oni controlled the cops. The only, he also controlled – he was a gang leader. They called him Oni the killer as a kid. And uh, he, Prohibition gifted these guys. That's the point. Prohibition gifted these guys an in industry, the sixth largest industry in the country. And uh, it's – so he goes from nothing. But he owns all these kids who are former gangsters, and he gets them to patrol – and watch out for the feds. That's who they're worried about—the federal prohibition agents. And if a federal prohibition agent agents attempted to make a raid on it, what Oni would do is he hit a little switch here, turn a little valve here, and all the beer foaming Oni Madden's lager, uh, is called Oni's Number One, would go down into the New York sewer system. So they could—they never nailed the guy, and he retired in um, in Arkansas, and. Uh, when he was operated on to take out all the gunshot wounds that he had as a kid, the nurse on the operating table was Bill Clinton's mother. And, uh, and she says, Bill tells this story in his autobiography. And I don't believe a lot of things Bill Clinton says, but maybe so maybe this is true. But when they opened him up, his mother's told him that it looked like the galaxy. It was all glittering in there, you know, from the bullet shots. There were six or seven of them that they pulled out of the guy. Anyway, um, he was, gangsters have to have a, a place to sell their booze and a place to hang out, so they bought clubs, like the Texas Guinan Club. She was queen of the night in New York, the big nightclub hostess in New York City, and Oni set her up in, in business. Here's her small club, and they're, the crowd's waiting that night for the, for, the, for the king of the night, Jimmy Walker, uh, to arrive. Now, New York is the city that Oni drove around in, in a big Dusenberg, with his buddy George Raft, um, Raft is a kid who grew up with Oni in Hell's Kitchen. And when George Raft played all those gangster movies in the 30s, he said it was Oney Madden. It was Oney Madden I was playing. But anyway, when he drives drive around in this Dusenberg, he's driving around in the most congested city in the world. Manhattan's a thin island, okay? It's got six to almost 7 million people in 1927. So you've got to relieve the congestion. One of the first guys to do it is this guy, Clifford Holland. He did it with a Holland Tunnel. And now, people knew how to build the tunnels under the Hudson and but nobody had ever built a vehicular tunnel this long the first vehicular tunnel was in pittsburgh and when they shot the first you know couple cars in there the first two days several people got very sick and one person died from carbon monoxide poisoning how do you get these fumes out of the tunnel and that stumped engineers a lot of engineers said just get big fans and blow it through you can't do that cuz the fire starts in there you know it, 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 it would turn into a tornado so he's got to tame the hurricane tame the wind. So what he does is he builds, he's only 26 years old. He's, you know, five years, you know, out of Harvard. And uh, Clifford Holland, and that's the Holland Tunnel's named there. You wouldn't know, there's only been one bust of him. It's behind the entrance of the Holland Tunnel in New York by the toll. You can't even see it. I got out of my car one day, tried to take a look at it, almost got arrested. But, yeah, it's just off limits. But he built these things called wind factors. And they're like Venetian blinds and you open them up and they catch the wind, and then there's big turbines in there that turn it real fast and blow it hard, and they blow it through, not through the tunnel, but they blow it out of these vents that come out, of the fresh air comes out of the cap level, and if the bad air is sucked out of the ceiling. And it's done in a rotating base every 90 seconds, the tunnel is clean. So the air in here is as clean as the air in New York, which ain't saying something, but, uh, <laughs> but it, it is clean. And without it, it's a, it's a carbon monoxide, it's, it's, a, it's a poisonous tunnel. It, it's a killer tunnel. And so every tunnel in the world built after this for, for vehicles, including the Lincoln, uh, is built this way. And the Holland is still the longest tunnel, longer than the Lincoln in New, York, in New York City. Now, while they're doing this in 27, there's this big debate in New York now about throwing skyscrapers up to 100 stories tall and crowding crowding out the Chrysler building and everything else. And they're going to do it without putting in a lot of transportation infrastructure. The nice thing about what New York did here is when they built big, tall, they built infrastructure to carry cars and human beings. And, And just two months before this, they laid the foundations for the GW Bridge. And this is the architect, Othmar Amman. He's from Switzerland. And he came over here to study architecture and stayed and became the greatest American bridge builder ever. He built every major bridge in New York after the Brooklyn Bridge, culminating with the Verrazano Bridge, the last bridge, by the way, built in New York City. But his consummate achievement, of course, is the GW Bridge. And what's cool about this bridge is the narrow, it's the thinness of deck, and a lot of people didn't think that decking could handle 16,000, 17,000 automobiles just before they even built a second deck underneath it. Um, a lot of sick jokes about that, calling the second deck Marth and all that. But um, the um, that's what it looked like in, in the construction stage. And he liked too. Uh, well, he didn't like it first. This, but the Estes did this beautiful steel bracing. Guy wrote about Lewis Mumford. Loved that. That's industrial architecture at its very, very best. It form follows function, and there's no extraneous orientation on it. It's cool, like a well-built knife or a beautiful boat. And, uh, but Holland, you know, uh, excuse me, um, uh, Amman felt that he wanted to clad it with granite. But the Port Authority, who, who, who paid the bill for the bridge, didn't have the money for it. It's the Depression, 1932. So they left it open. And he got to like this accidental art. And all its other buildings, the Whitestone, you know, the Midtown, you know, all the other buildings in New York all the other uh, uh, Amon Bridges in New York have this sort of thing. Uh, Gay Talese wrote a great book about the Veranzano Bridge, and he interviews Amon in his hotel in Midtown, and he has a telescope, and he'd sit there and watch all his bridges. You could see them all. Yeah. And his wife said he would genuflect when he, when he drove across the GW. It was always his, uh, always his favorite. And the last of these construction efforts, the one side that was of New York Midtown that was really ignored and is only coming back now is Hell's Kitchen. Where a lot of these characters came from, and the GW, along with the highways that lead down from it, like the West Side Highway and Riverside Drive, bring a lot of traffic from New Jersey, Bergen County, into Midtown, and Bergen County. And you know, this creates Bergen County as a suburb of New York, and a lot of this traffic goes through Hell's Kitchen. Now, Hell's Kitchen. Before the problem was the trains; they ran on 10th and 11th Avenue. They ran straight down the middle of the street. And a 50-year period, they killed 600 kids uh, playing in the streets. So New York dictated that in front of every one of these trains had to be a New York cowboy, a kid or an older man on a horse with a lantern or a flag warning pedestrians about that. Maybe you read Mario Puzo, The Godfather. And he wrote a real novel once called Fortunate Pilgrim, which is a wonderful novel. They made it into a film starring Sophie Loren. It's a wonderful novel about him growing up in Hell's Kitchen, and one of the characters is one of those urban cowboys. And then they, Jimmy Walker uh, forced them to raise the tracks, which they were, and then they drove these tracks right through buildings, and they became obsolete by the 1950s, but that's the High Line today. That's the High Line. That's the origins of the New York High Line. And finally, you know, the one business that stays in Midtown, it actually moves further up from the east side is the garment industry because it had to be close to buyers. It had to be close to sacks. It had to be close to to magazines and, and radio for advertising. So the fashion dresses, the high-end dresses are made in New York, and the low-end stuff, the mass-produced stuff is made in towns like I live in, eastern Pennsylvania, Reading, Pennsylvania, Scranton, and places like that. And... Same thing happened with publishing. Publishers stayed in Midtown to be close to magazines, radio, eventually television, the advertising business. This is Horace Livright, founder of one of the great New York firms in the 1920s. They had to stay there. But the books are made, you know, Simon & Schuster makes its books in Scranton. Um, so to another, a couple other presses, John Updike wrote a great story about going to watch his books made in Scranton. But... Um, the firms were had to stay in Midtown, and Livwright's a great story. I try to tell the story of publishing in New York, and in 10 seconds I'll tell it to you here. These guys, like Livwright, a gambler from Philadelphia, stockbroker, gambler, also gambled on plays, hit on some, big driver novel, American Tragedy, big hit on Broadway, Dracula, but most of them spectacular the failures. He drank too much. Uh, his offices were... Which sit right today, which my building, you know, my, my publisher's building is on 6th Avenue, in Stein and Schuster, which used to be the um, bootleg and club life center of New York City. And there are probably more bootleggers in LiveWright's offices than there were publishers at any given day. But he's a publisher of principle. He published Hemingway, he published Faulkner, he published James Joyce, he published Freud, um, he published playwrights, and nobody had ever done that before. And he took gambles on it. He fought censorship in New York City. And guess who he got as his lawyer, Jimmy Walker. And uh, Walker won the debate. Walker was great. Dramatists in New York would take actors up to Albany when Walker was a senator and watch him from the balcony. He was like a gallery god. Watch him perform. He was that good. But Walker won the debate in the legislature with one line. What woman has ever been ruined by a book? And uh, well, <laughs> that kind of carried the day. That was on the front page of the New York Times the next day. So people like Livride, Bennett Cerf, who founded Random House, Richard Simon, and Max Schuster, who founded Simon Schuster, young Jewish adventurers, Alfred Knopf, all founded their firms in the 1920s in New York, challenging the old guard, the Boston guard, you know, firms like Little Brown and things like this. And Live Right, of course, was drawn to Broadway. And that's the last thing I'll do here tonight. This is Broadway, and that was the last major area in New York to change in the twenties. Now here's what it looked like uh, just around just before World War I. Now the Times building is built in 1904, and Adol Fox, who owns the Times, once it built there because there's a subway, area. and he senses that New York's going to come to him. Just as fifty years before Vanderbilt sensed it, so people would come from his first station. And um, so that's what it looks like. Seven year, three years later, 1907, he drops the first ball from the thing. And this is New Year's Day, uh, New Year's Eve in 1907. three million people gathered around that site. I sure don't see them there. Um, and then the whole street gets lit up. Now, the so-called Great White Way, that had been in the in, around World War I, and that was below 42nd Street. And um, great hotels and lobster houses and things, but the lights were all white. Here they're technicolor. So you had beer bottles in the air and peanuts dropping from the firmament and moving things. The freshman called it a conspiracy of light against the night. <coughs> and uh, The whole city is, is lit up like that. And it becomes an art piece. And Of course, the movies come in, and they drive legitimate theater off-Broadway. You can't compete with movies. People were nuts about them then. And you can run three and four shows a night. You can only run one-run play a night. And you could put 5,000 people in some of these theaters. So you couldn't pay the rent to, to run a legitimate theater on Broadway. So they are where they are today, on the side streets. And the movies commanded it. People would come pouring out of the subway stations. And they go to places like this, the Roxy. This is opening night in the Roxy, 1927 March. The spotlights are out and things like that. That's a bad slide, but it was the best I could do. And inside the Roxy, it was opulent. People made fun of it. One critic said, well, it's the largest theater since the fall of Rome. Wow. And and this is, is, you walked into the lobby. And a New Yorker did a cartoon of this. There's a, there's a lady standing here with her kid, a little boy, and he looks up and he says, does God live here? <laughs> and that's what it But everyone made fun of the quiche and everything like that. But Roxy didn't care. Uh, Roxy was out for the common people. Uh, a queen steam fitter making fifty a day could take his wife to see a double feature, <coughs> no reserve seats, and get treated like a rajah by some of these uh, well-drilled ushers. Art- Roxy used to be a Marine Corps drill sergeant. And these kids lived right in the building, and he trained them. And they had little kits with, with smelling salts in it, and mints, and flashlights, and things like that. <coughs> and there's the inconspicuous looking Roxy on the radio. And um, what an interesting character. He, another guy I didn't know. He, um, he, he's born out, he, he was German. But he's born out in the, in, in the Minnesota timber country. He comes to New York. He doesn't make it. He joins the Marines, fights in China, comes back, and becomes a book salesman. And he sells books up in my region of the country, up near Scranton, Pennsylvania. And he goes into a tavern. He loved hot dogs. And he goes into this tavern, and he orders a hot dog, and he sees a real good-looking w- woman behind the bar, the owner's daughter. So he comes back again and again, and the owner said, look, if you're interested in my daughter, put her on an apron and become a bartender and you're going to have to stay here for a year and a half till I get to know you before you can date her. So Roxy did that, and he, got a, he made extra money playing minor league baseball in Scranton. That's where he got the name. His name was Rothafell. He got the name Roxy. And uh, he marries her, and he says to the old man, you know, you have a, a skating rink out back here. Yeah, we use it for skating. They live in a very Slovak neighborhood, which is my origins. And he said these Slovak miners come in here and they they start skating. They can't skate. And then it it turns into a a drunken punch out. So we had to close it down. So Roxy said, how about we do movies? Movies, what are movies? Roxy went to Scranton in the the middle of a winter in the snow. He walked 10 miles to Scranton from Forest City, where this tavern was located. He bought a couple of uh, two real movies and he showed them. Uh, He bought the projector. He hired a, a, a pianist from the local church and, or, and an organist, and um, he sold tickets. Uh, he even uh, created an interesting thing. He dipped, <laughs> this is so hokey, it's unbelievable. He dipped um, sponges in rose water, and, um, and then he put them in front of a fan and blew the, 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 the fragrance of rose into the room, and he did that for the Rose Bowl parade. <laughs> he, he, he called it smell-o-vision. <laughs> and he, the guy... <laughs> The guy and and here he is making it making it in new york city he goes on the air see in new york city they bring him in here because he can turn theaters around and they didn't have enough movies in the 20s to fill the theater enough good movies to fill these big capacious theaters so they had these things called prologues and the prologue would last longer than a movie the prologue would last like four hours and they'd have 186 piece orchestras ballet They'd have clog dancers, circus animals, everything else. And people came for the prologue. Marcus Lowe, the theater uh, impresario, says, we don't sell tickets to movies. We sell tickets to theaters. And Roxy ran the prologues. And here he is announcing one of the prologues on radio. They said, why don't you go on this new thing called radio in 1922? So he starts announcing that people start writing his letters and he creates a variety show. The first American variety show on radio with the actors in the prologue sitting around him on couches I do like that. First, you know, Jack Parr, if you will. And he goes on radio. 1927, that guy on the left, David Sarnoff, buys him. Puts him on the air on NBC. And in 27, Sarnoff founds the first national radio network in the world. And that's his mentor there, Giuliano Marconi, who he worked for as a kid. And uh, this is his biggest rival. He came into town the next year, Bill Paley, son of a Philadelphia cigar maker. But he's rich. Uh, Sarnoff didn't like him. Uh, he was only eight years younger, but he called him Kid. And he said, you know, I made my money from nothing, from a Belarusian village. This guy had it handed to him. But this guy is the one, Paley, who hooked entertainment permanently to advertising. And the radio is the first major industry that is subsidized entirely by radio. Paley, in his archive, there's letters, there's people send letters into Paley and say, we're getting this great music, we're getting Amos and Andy, we're getting Jack Benny. Well, who do we pay? You don't pay anybody. The advertisers pay for it. Okay, we give him advertising time and so Paley and, and this guy they go out after entertainment and Paley gets the great coup he gets Ellington in 1927 Ellington had been playing Duke had come up from Washington DC popular jazz man in Midtown not Harlem in a club called the Club Kentucky and um as he said you know the place didn't close so the cash register stopped ringing and um he was playing uptown at the Cotton Club okay and um Paley used to go to the Cotton Club with his wife. He loved jazz. And he, puts Paley, he wants to put Ellington on the, uh, on the radio. Uh, but even before this, I should tell this story, how, how Ellington gets up to the Cotton Club. He had, a, he had a smart agent, and they had a big act coming up for Christmas. And, and, and the guy who was the head act, the head entertainer, died that November. So the owner of the Cotton Club, Oni Madden, um, brought it from the fighter Jack Johnson, Oney Madden has Ellington audition and says, I like it, kid. I'm going to sign you to a contract. And Ellington's manager, Irvin Mills, said, wait a minute. You have a gig. You've got to do a road show, and you start in Philadelphia tomorrow. So he left town on the morning train. So Madden called his buddy in Philadelphia called Boo Boo Huff. And Boo Boo Huff ran Philadelphia like Oney Madden, Oney Madden ran Manhattan. And he sent one of his boys out to see the manager of the show, And the guy came in and uh, said, uh, listen, uh, be big or be dead. And the guy goes, what do you mean, be big? He goes, let this kid go to New York. So he became big. And that night, Ellington and his band went to Harlem, and and the rest is history. And up, up up here, he creates what he calls, he hated the word jazz. He called it Negro folk music. And by 1932, people are comparing him to Brahms and Beethoven. And uh, he's that good as a composer. And Paley puts him on the radio then, uh, after watching him in the club on CBS. And now, and this is what I do throughout the book, New York's music becomes the music of the country. Everybody hears it. They, they had Ellington's records before, but now they got him live. And that was just terrific. That was just terrific. And finally, my last character, Florence Ziegfeld, what a complicated guy, you know. I mean, an impresario, a crackpot, everything else. He's from Chicago. His father was a classical musician, and he wanted to be a cowboy. And he ran away with a Wild West show when he was a kid. Uh, then he becomes a carny man, a draw-in guy. He, he hired a, a strong man named Sarnoff, uh, and, and he uh, so, uh, Sarnoff, and he brought him in. People, women would pay five cents to feel his muscles, things like that. He had a hokey thing called the Dancing Ducks of Denmark. These ducks would dance on this plate, and then they ar- arrested him. Uh, the animal suppression the animal rights people came in they found out that the ducks were dancing because there were gas jets underneath the uh, the iron thing so he he 's a charlatan and he founds the, he, you know he founds the follies, of course, the follies run for like seventeen straight years. The glorification of the American girl quintessential light entertainment you know and uh, very sexist and everything else and all of a sudden this master of light entertainment stuns the world with showboat showboat hey listen there's ad and bc before showboat after showboat that's the american theater the theater is never the same this in oklahoma changed everything the the plot came right out of the, mu- the music and the plot were integrated perfectly and in this show black and white are on the stage at the same time and it's a story about racial miscegenation, a pretty hot topic the Schubert's were all over him on this and they wanted to suppress the play And but he had the guts to do it he also had the guts to hire Duke Ellington to appear on stage with 60 of his showgirls in, 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 a, in, a, in a production called Showgirl and then he gets William Randolph Hearst the newspaper mogul, to subsidize the building of the Ziegfeld Theater just off, just off Broadway. And I think, and this is the end of it, I think that Ziegfeld, for me, when I was doing the book, I thought, you know, it's Fitzgerald's age, the jazz age, but you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald was rarely in New York. Um, he was mostly in Europe during this period of time, and I think it's, uh, it, it's a guy like Ziegfeld that captures the energy of New York, the gambling nature of New York, the, uh, the risk-taking in New York City. This guy would go into the Baccarat tables in France and he'd bet and lose $50,000 a night. Uh, he gambled wildly on everything. And uh, he's, a, he's a complicated character, too. He's a, he's a tremendously dynamic man. Um, and, uh, and yet he couldn't communicate face-to-face with people. He would send people directly across the hall from him, telegrams. He sent up to 100 telegrams a day. Uh, one of his friends said, if he dies, sell Western Union short. And this, this guy who hired the best comedians in the world, the very best comedians in the world, he never was seen to laugh. So, and yet he and his wife, Billy Burke, the famous actress, they lived like Romans uh, and entertained like Romans on uh, a place called Berkeley Crest up, on the, uh, up in the Hudson and they had uh, pet menageries, they had an elephant, pet elephant for his daughter. They had pet bears called Tunny and Dempsey. And, uh, but Ziegfeld captures all that, and he captures what was lost, too, because he bet it all in the stock market. He bet it all. And, and he lost. He was in town that day. He was so cheap, he was fighting somebody over the building of a sign in front of his theater, a small sign and he was fighting for $55, and that day his telephone operator wasn't back at the company when his broker called him and told him to sell everything at 9.30 in the morning. He came back at 5, and he was flat broke. He never regained his touch, this famous Ziegfeld touch. He dies alone in 1936 with a quarter million dollars worth of debt. Uh, That year, Fred French dies too, and he's he's about $200,000 into debt. But what they built... That Manhattan is a great place, and and actually it was a Chicagoan that summed it up. He said, by night, the skyscraper looms in the smoke and the stars and has a soul, and that's Carl Sandburg, and that's Midtown Manhattan. Okay, thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm happy to take questions. I have one from the back. Uh, I have a comment and a question? Sure. Um. Oh boy. <laughs> um, the, um, uh, I'll start
2: with the, Could you stand up and
1: speak for yourself? He said guy. he has a comment and a question. <laughs> well,
2: uh, the uh, comment is that um, prohibition, of... a lot of people in America didn't want. Didn't want prohibition. It was, it was done by a lot of white men people at that time, because right. uh, some people got killed, killed in uh, doing something with drinking, and so they passed it through. And then once it got passed, then a couple of the presidents didn't want to touch it because they wanted to be reelected and so But and the reason that the Italians come from, um got into that and that's how the Mafia really they They called it a prohibition. They felt the need. The people wanted it. Most Americans wanted it. Yeah. And so uh, the Jewish people were behind it. Mm-hmm. Kennedy, uh, some Kennedy, uh, uh, and I love the Kennedy, so. Uh, also, you know, Irish, but the Italians had the muscle and the organization, so <laughs> the they kind of ran it. So you know, they filled the needle and in the mouth. Did was, you yeah. have a question? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Based on uh, the question. The, the question was, um, uh, how did Hell's Kitchen get its name?
1: No one knows. No, no. I have a footnote on that. There's, there's a thousand stories on that. It was named after a spot called Hell's Kitchen in London, <coughs> et cetera. The, the cops named it that because of the, you know, it, it, it was just so anarchic. I mean, you'd go in, cops didn't go in there because the kids in Hell's Kitchen, the thugs in Hell's Kitchen, would steal the cops' jackets and uniforms and then parade around with them and their girlfriend in, you know, in the spring at I mean, uh, night. It was a rough, rough place. No one knows. I, I went into
3: that, you know, epidemiology really no one knows the name. Why it's called that? Uh, yeah. Question? Yeah. Yeah, your book is about how New York, specifically Manhattan, in the '20s shaped popular culture. Yeah. Did you look at um, a lot of movies uh, that depicted that time? And I'm, I'm especially thinking of. 1939 Warner Brothers movie, The Roaring Twenties. Yeah. With James Cagney and Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, I showed it in my class, uh, yeah. Both of whom were New Yorkers. Yep. In 1899. And the great thing about that movie is that if you're familiar with that era, you can pick stuff out that's based on real characters. Like Gladys George plays
1: Texas. Texas When
3: they come
1: in. Damon Runyon really built her up, too, as a character. Yeah, yeah. And when they,
3: and, uh, when they uh, come into the club, The uh, suckers, as she called them, she'd say, "Hello, hello, suckers!" suckers, Right.
1: Right. I think she did more. She's she's often caricatured, but she did more than just about anybody to end prohibition by making a fool out of federal prosecutors. She was arrested over twenty-five times, and she beat every rap. And, uh, and, and she proved that, that not all women were against prohibition. And that was the, the message that, 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 that went out, you know, on the airwaves, more or less, the political airwaves, that, that, that the entire women's movement is behind this sort of thing. And, and it wasn't. You know, that's actually
3: in the movie, when she meets Cagney, she's busted for liquor. Absolutely. By, you know, her while she lays it off on Cagney, so she walks. Yeah. I mean, it's perfect. It's great.
1: Yeah. Yes. The 1920s were the first decade that women had to vote. Mm-hmm. If you don't see that many, very many female characters. How do you, how do you justify that? In, in this, yeah, I, 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 I think I got you know quite a few female characters in here. I have in my book um, the ones you don't see here. You see uh, Rubenstein, and you see you know Elizabeth Arden. And in my book, I deal with a a couple of uh, uh, Hattie Carnegie, who's one of the founders of the modern fashion industry in New York City. You got Guinan herself. You got Lois Long, who more than any writer on The New Yorker helped to transform The New Yorker into a a, a true metropolitan magazine. And she's a typical jazz age type woman, absolutely brilliant. She wrote a fashion column on Fifth Avenue, and then she wrote a, a, a column on the nightclub scene called Lipstick. And she's an absolutely terrific character. I do Billy Burke a lot in the book. I do a lot of women in this. In fact, I just did an article that's on the web called The Women of of Supreme City. So they're there. Yeah. Yes.
2: Were there particular banks or bankers who were instrumental at the time when all the construction was going on?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. This, you know, there are a lot of them. I, I deal with Otto Kahn a lot. And, and, and somewhat baroque, but, you know, it's not primarily my story. But what I do try to show in the book is how New York got itself into an inextricable dilemma here that you just, you couldn't get out of. As they built, you, know, you know, New Yorkers paid no federal income tax, minimal federal income tax, no state tax except for education, and there wasn't any city tax, okay? 90% of the income, the revenue, is from real estate taxes. So... The city has an interest in building, okay, in building forever, forever, forever. And the banks are tied into this because as long as, the, as, as they can sell the city's bonds, okay, they're, they're not going to – because New York is overspending and Walker is overspending a lot. But they're going to allow the overspending because it doesn't seem that the construction is going to end. You you build more buildings and you can actually build it, bring in more revenue while you're you're going in debt and you're becoming prosperous at the same time. And it's a thing. It, it, it's like the urban Berlin zone, blue skies. It's never going to end. And then all of a sudden, one you know, the stock market crash doesn't have to lead to a depression. It, it was the economy that was unsound. And what happens is when the banks start to call in the bonds and they can't sell the bonds, then the city can't spend and then it goes bankrupt. So I think the banks are complicit with the city in this, in this, this surge, this construction surge, that was fueled by real estate. Um, it looked like something that was never going to stop. We can't stop building. It has a momentum of its own.
0: I'm, I'm going to take the privilege of the last question. Okay. And uh, so what I want to ask you, would you tell us a little bit, a couple of minutes, about what it's like working with Hanks and Spielberg on a HBO special?
1: Humbling. Well, um, I had worked with them before in a very minor role. And um, when we did a film called The Pacific, um, uh, Hanks had called me and said, Our our problem is that we have individually good shows, but the shows don't seem to connect. And so I was brought in to try to help to make them connect. And we couldn't have Alistair Cooks sitting in a leather chair doing the job. So you had to, you know, like masterpiece theater of old but uh, so you had to do it in an interesting way and I had given Hanks my book to read he liked it a lot and Spielberg liked it equally and they bought the book and so we're in production we're not quite in production now but we're working on scripts right now and I'll just tell you a few things about Hanks who's the primary guy on this he's a very hard guy to work for but he's very he's a very congenial guy he's very fair but um we hired a scriptwriter. I won't mention his name, and he's, he's one of the creators of, of, of Breaking Bad. And we thought he had real edge, and he's a wonderful guy. But uh, Hank saw the script, the original scripts he did, called The Bible, where you lay out, um, we laid out all 10 episodes. So like when, we, when we did Pacific and Brand of Brothers, we, we just created an outline, and we allowed the individual producers and directors to do each of the shows. But Hank said, for this one, Based on my book, since it's a complex book with not just one group, we're de- we're dealing with one group out of many I deal with in the book, so we got to do something, uh, you know, a little more elaborate in preparation for production. So we did a thing called the Bible, where we wrote. Um, this guy was in charge of writing all ten episodes, um, and include that's just not outlining them. So that's a hard job, and we thought we were ready to go to production. And Hanks read it and said it's not true enough to what happened. And it's not true enough to the book. And um, he, th- this fella isn't going to go on with us. And uh, he hired a whole new group of screenwriters. And he sat us down and he said, listen, this may sound really hokey to everybody, but I want this to be the greatest war movie ever made. And I want it to be a, a story of grim realism and, uh, and a real tough movie about hard war. And um, so... and." His his expertise really is fidelity. I think if you saw what he did with McCullough's book, John Adams. I mean, the stockings were right, the watches were right, the hats were just right. Everything has to be exactly right to period. At one production meeting, someone said, "Well, we have this character. We're going to do combat surgeons. They went on the planes with the airmen and um, uh, to observe how they stood up under stress, because you know the Eighth Air Force was experiencing." Combat fatigue loss is what we would call uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Up to 33% of the flight crews were experiencing it. So it was an epidemic. And um, we said, well, we'll create a composite uh, combat surgeon. And Hank said, God damn it, we have no composites in the movie. Everyone has to be based on an absolute real character that absolutely lived, and we're going to tell their story with absolute fidelity. So uh, he's good to work with in that regard because... When you place a book in someone's hands, you lose complete control over the book. And I've been lucky with my Chicago series, which Austin Hoyt, the director, yeah, the producer, made into a wonderful film, I thought. And I was pretty much an observer there. And it was, it was fun to sit in the room and watch how they tear apart the book. Like, like, not, not necessarily tear it down, but they break it up. And they reassemble it in different ways. And then you say to yourself, and, and I'm not going to blurt this out in a meeting, but they, they, they'd say, I'd say to myself, oh, my God, they're going to ruin the book on that point. And then you'd say, three seconds later, there'd be another idea, and you'd say, why didn't I think of that? That's a perfect way to do that. I wish I could have written the book again. And Dave McCullough told me you know, a long time ago, he says, when you get mixed up with filmmakers, he said there's going to be two things. He said they're going to steal like crazy from you, and they're probably not going to pay you, and I, I don't think that's true with Hanks. And he said you're going to learn a hell of a lot a hell of a lot about writing, about movement, plot, script, tension, everything. Because I think good historians have to work like good novelists. Um, we as historians have an obligation to tell stories. history, story, And I think history is often lost because of that. And Hanks is a great storyteller. His favorite book is a book called Stoner. And it, it's a novel um, by, by the author of another fantastic book on, on, on Augustus Caesar. And uh, but um, the, um, and it's all about a teacher. It, it's, it's to a lot of people a boring book about a teacher. But now that everybody knows Hanks is reading it, it's selling like crazy. And uh, John Williams is the author. And it's a wonderful book. But Hanks is a born teacher. He loves to teach. And I'll tell you one final thing about working with him. And this, has, this doesn't have anything to do directly with the, uh, with the film. I made a film with him which he allowed me to produce. And uh, it was an HBO show called He Has Seen War. And after we finished that, it was an arduous, uh, the last day of finishing it. We were really tired. And we really went out on the limb when we asked him to do some promotions for the World War II Museum, and, which he has his heart in. He and Spielberg were two of the founders of the museum. In fact, we're doing this wonderful tour, and I'll have some uh, propaganda on the tour available later on, of the Eighth Air Force bases in East Anglia in May, we're going to do London. We're going to do Bletchley, which has been recently restored. We're going to do the underground war rooms at Churchill. We're going to do the plotting rooms where they plotted the Battle of Britain uh, in a bunker, where the women moved around those planes, you know, with those long sticks and things. So it's going to be a great tour, and that's that's in May. But um, uh, and hopefully that's where we're going to be. Uh, we should be ready for production. At that, uh, at that point. And now I forgot the point I was making before because I was rambling on. Yeah. Okay, so, so he stands there, and he comes out, and he does a, does a nice little thing. He, make, he makes a joke at first. He does a nice little thing, and the producer goes, perfect. He said, nah, it was crap. He did 17 of them. It took us two and a half hours. He did 17 of these 30-second pros. Same one. Same one, 17 times, till he thought it was right. and. He's not doing it for anything, you know, but, you know, for the museum. And he just has that sense of professional, professionalism about it. And I always tell that story to students, you know, when you talk about you don't want to revise your paper once, okay? Okay, so, yeah, he was a great guy to work with. Great guy. Thanks a lot.